Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Jeffrey Madoff, my talking partner from long ago from Ohio. We didn't realize that until much later, but we both grew up in northern Ohio. The topic that we were just exploring when we last talked, Jeff, was really the kind of the magic that happens when you have great teamwork, and we called there sort of a mindset. And we see it a lot in the arts. We see it a lot in entrepreneurship. And I just wondered, from your standpoint, both as a producer, as a director, as someone who is interviewing people, and then you've basically videoed shows and everything else, if you had to pick two or three people who you thought that the moment that they entered a situation, they brought greater teamwork with them, they had sort of a an aura about them that made other people more cooperative and more collaborative from your history. And, you know, I mean, you go back, uh, you know, um, as a spectator, you're right in one of the greatest entertainment centers in the world, and you've seen great plays. You've seen many, many different examples of collaborative presentation, collaborative entertainment. So just off the top, we hadn't talked about this before, but who were three individuals who you said, I bet everybody's better off because that person is part of the team? Well, interesting question, Dan. And before I answer it, I want to ask you a question that relates to this. One of the terms that's used a lot in the world that we both traffic in is mindset. How do you define mindset? Yeah, well, my approach to it is real simple. It's the way you've trained to set your mind. So I just reverse the words. You can call it attitude, you can call it perspective, but there's kind of a way that you've trained yourself to deal with a multitude of different kinds of situation in your life. Could be positive, and this is my mindset about positive things. Could be negative, and this is my mindset about negative things. And I've talked about this quite a bit over the last year, because when the COVID lockdown started, and we're about, you know, as we're recording this, it's about 15 months from the lockdown part of it, that I told my team, I said, I just want you to know from my past experience, and I've been through good situations and bad situations, and I've read a lot of history, that how you show up during this period of time is going to be remembered by other people and you're going to remember how you showed up too. And then we got talking about what's your mindset when something unexpected that seems negative, how do you respond to that? You know, you either have trained yourself or it keeps catching you by surprise. My approach is that we train ourselves in this situation, do this, in this situation, do this, in this situation, do that. So that's how I approach the word. Do you think most people are even aware of the mindset they bring into a situation or they just act out? No, I think they're reactive. I think they're reactive. And the reactive isn't predictable. I mean, the reactive is what else was happening that day. Right. Yeah. They have no notion that how they act actually has an impact on how other people respond to them. Right. And how they're perceived. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to ask that before I gave you the answer, not to give myself time to think of an answer, (laughs) but rather, you know, that's a term that is so overused. And I agree completely with you that most people aren't even aware of what their mindset is and what they even project when they walk into the room for the first time. 
but they speak about it as if it's something that is controlled through discipline and their focus. And that's my mindset. And I don't think most people actually function that way. Yeah, I think it's triggered by consciousness. In other words, that you're in a situation and oftentimes you're a spectator. You're not actually a participant, but you're more of a spectator. And somebody does something really well and you say, that's really good behavior. That's worth learning from what that person just did or the opposite, the opposite. So to answer your question, I'll give you actually three examples as you had asked. One is I worked with Vilmos Zygmunt. Vilmos Zygmunt is a historic, legendary cinematographer who died a few years ago. And I had the good fortune to work with him a few times and become friends with him. And Vilmos did Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Deliverance, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, just an amazing cinematographer nominated for more Academy Awards than any other. And when he walked onto the set and, you know, he was, you know, well into his career, he was considered a legend as he was still working because, you know, there were books written about his work and so on. But what he did when you were on a set with him is engaged immediately with the crew and he was very open and then he would do things as opposed to telling people to do things and even when it came down to some of the motions in front of the camera he would do these motions to sort of illustrate what he was looking for and so on and what was so cool is that he immediately established number one that He's willing to do anything to make the job better, okay? And that's, I think, a really important part. And that he displays that willingness not by talking about it, but by, in fact, doing that so that it was nothing that was, like, below him. He didn't have to delegate this in terms of that in the early stage to establish hierarchy or pecking order. And so he brought out the best in his crews because he was so engaged and present with them, which I think was huge. He was a total joy to work with Mm -hmm. and an incredibly talented cinematographer. We had a lot of fun working together and seeing that was really neat. And one of the women that worked for me, her boyfriend was a cinematographer who, when he heard that I was working with Vilmos, He was like, oh, my God, if I could just come by the set. So I said, sure. And, you know, come by. And I knew when our lunch was scheduled. And so I mentioned to Vilmos. And he said, yeah, of course, invite him. So uh, when Jay went and met Vilmos and he asked him a few questions and Vilmos answered. And he said, wow, that's so great that you're so open and we'll talk about those things that other people consider secrets. And Vilmos's response was, true masters don't have any secrets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he kind of laughed when he was calling himself a true master. It was just, you know, we're talking about work. So he was somebody who made the situation better when he was there. Sheldon Epps, who's the director for my play. Sheldon is... In the same way, it's that he and I had an agreement when we started. I don't know if I had mentioned this previously or not, 
But when he and I met, I really liked him. And I've been interviewing a number of directors. And I said to him, I have to tell you something. I have the no asshole rule. And he said, well, I think I know what you mean, but just explain it so I'm clear. And I said, if you're paying me, you can be an asshole. You can't be abusive, but you can be an asshole. I'll just charge you more. <laughs> but if I'm paying you, you can't be. And he said, we're in the same place. <laughs> and in working with him, he was instrumental in setting up not a hierarchy, but a community of all of the talents involved in doing the play well, which is how I always worked with crews in film production. I would always introduce myself and talk to everybody at the beginning. I didn't know that that was unusual, but apparently it was. And at the end, I made it a point to go around and shake hands with everyone and thank them for their efforts. And I had people coming up to me and said, nobody's ever done, director's ever done that before. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, look, we're all doing this together. So again, to me, it was about including people because I think also you get better work out of them when they're invested emotionally in a project and feel a part of something and contributing value to that something. Again, it was something else I said to, to Sheldon is I never want anybody to rob the joy of the process because mm -hmm. the process is what's fun. Mm -hmm. The end result of course, you want it to be great. And that's what the whole process is about, is getting that to greatness. Mm -hmm. But when that's done, that's done. But the process is the really joyful part of it, you know, for me. And a good friend of mine, an incredible musician, Ed Palermo. Ed Palermo has a big band. He is, I think, a genius as an arranger. The same people have played with him for years. And it's because he allows each person who is, you know, all A-level musicians, their own space to express and to contribute. And by the way, Lloyd Price did the same thing. I met people, Nile Rogers, who is a legend in business, who was amazing. When I asked him if he knew Lloyd, he laughed and said, when I was a 16-year-old kid, Lloyd Price was the first person who hired me. <laughs> and I was just a kid, but he recognized my talent. So yes, I know Lloyd, and I have tremendous respect for Lloyd. And I, over the years, met a number of people who have played with him. Never did I hear a bad word. Always it was about being inclusive and being nice to people. Mm -hmm. So in all of these cases, there is a common thread, which is respecting other people's opinions, listening, and making sure as best as you could that everyone felt a part of the process and invested in that process. Mm -hmm. And I think if you do that, whatever you're doing, whether you're running a construction team, a film crew, theater, a conference, whatever it is, I think that makes it better and creates a collaborative atmosphere that just people bring their best game to that, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a question about the current play? Since you were demonstrating this and all the key people that you brought in to organize it, were there any of the players, uh, the minor players here, that just couldn't respond to this? In other words, 
that they couldn't respond to the fact that they were being included. Have you seen that over the years where they've got something else going on and it just makes it hard for them to be really included? That has happened, I'm happy to say, rarely. And one of the ways about this, and one of the reasons it's rarely, is I believe you find good people through other good people. Mm -hmm. So our crews, you know, I would have my cinematographer put together, who did he want as his first assistant director, assistant cinematographer? Who did he want as his gaffer? You know, who are the different members of the crew that he's worked with, that he liked, that he feels supported by? Did the same thing in every department. So... The only times that that happened with me was I had a client who had a big problem with that. And there's a couple times that I had some talent in front of the camera who had a problem with it. But, you know, in the 40 years I've been doing that, maybe I've got four examples of that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because there's such a direct connection with most of the people there that are present the main people that had acted out in a negative way were usually people that were brought in that were not brought in through us. Relationship. That's right. Through relationship. Right. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Uh, The top one that both of us know that I would certainly put at the top of my list is Joe Polish. Mm -hmm. And I think Joe instinctively creates a welcoming environment wherever he is. Absolutely. And not only that, will personally knock himself out to make sure that everything works for everybody. I agree. And the thing with Joe, who of course introduced us, you know, Joe and I have known each other for 25, 26 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And the thing about relationships is that, you know, they require a certain nutrition, if you will, to continue to move forward and grow. And like you, I meet a lot of people, but there's only a few that it ignites into Mm -hmm. you want to make sure, like, frankly, like you and I have, Mm -hmm. that you enjoy that other person's company, that you want to spend other time rather than just when you're there doing what you're supposed to be doing, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's only so many hours in the day and so thinly you can spread yourself and all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Joe is a dear friend of yours, as he is of mine. Mm -hmm. And yes, he does that too. I didn't include him in the group I'm talking about because it wasn't like the same kind of roll up your sleeves work situation like I am with those. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of relationships, you know, Joe is, I think his true talent isn't his marketing, isn't all of that. It's his ability to connect people and make good connections among those people. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of close to home with mine because actually my parents, both my parents were really great at this. And it's interesting because both of them are 180 degrees from the families they came out of. And they both came out of big families. I remember as a child not wanting to visit the relatives because the contrast between the way that my parents operated, you know, and they were busy, really, really busy. My parents had seven kids and tried to make a go of farming in northern Ohio, and it didn't go. And my father had to switch. 
after a bankruptcy, the family farm went into bankruptcy and, you know, he had to scramble for jobs. And then he became a landscaper, which he had trained as in a nursery in Cleveland in his teenager. So he had actually knew quite a bit about plants and, you know, became a He had a career that went right till 82. He had his best business year when he was in his 80s. They were unfailingly good-willed, I would say, my parents. I never have an incident of my parents not being good-willed in any situation, you know, even how they handled the children. I mean, very, very interesting. They're both fifth children in their families. They're number five in their family. I'm number five. So we were a threesome of fifth kids. So I think somehow there was sort of a brainwave that kind of joined the three of us together, which from talking to my siblings wasn't necessarily true in their case. So that's a really great one. And I think that even closer to home, Babs is one of the most wonderfully congenial human beings. You know, we've been together 38 years now. We have a division of labor in Strategic Coach that we treat it like a live theater. And Babs is in charge of the company of the theater, the theater itself and everything that goes on. And I'm in charge of what goes on stage. Hmm. I'm the French stage guy. And she by far has the bigger team because I have about six or seven of our team members that I work with continually to produce new workshops, produce new books, produce new podcasts. But she's got 12 teams that answer directly to her. And she's so great with all of them. We have our first 30 years. We just had two of our team members. We started 30, it'll be 32 years in November since we started the workshop version of Strategic Coach. I did one-on-one coaching for a considerable amount of time before that. But we just have our two team members who joined us in the first year or two, and they're approaching 30 years. And we have 25 who are over 20 years. So it's been congenial for a lot of them. But we've got an attitude that all we care about is what the person is uniquely good at, which we call unique ability, and then how you take your unique ability and team up with other people's unique ability. One thing that's really interesting because there's so much tension, social tension, you know, political tension, ideological tension right now, and we've sort of flown right through it without any of that because our attitude, talk about mindset here, our mindset is the only thing we want to know is what you're really great at. And we want to, as quickly as possible, you're going to have to learn all sorts of things because we need help with things when you come aboard for the first time. But we're going to have a continual series of discussions with you about what part of the work you like best and what other people say you do best. And we want you to end up there. And then that's part one, that you're doing what you like doing and you're really good at. Part two is, are you good with teaming up with other people? And if you do, your responsibilities will constantly grow. The rewards will constantly grow with it. And if you can't do that, then this isn't a good place for you to be. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I look at, and I had the same kind of modeling of the behavior with my parents who were in retail and at their height, they had five stores was they had no turnover. The only way that you ended up getting a job is if somebody died, (laughs) you know, they would 
you know, it was, that was kind of the running joke Mm -hmm. because they made it a place to work that you enjoyed being there. Yeah. And it's not that my parents were conscious of good business strategies and tactics. That's just who they were and how they treated people. And so it wasn't like they had to somehow alter their behavior. You know, it was interesting because I think when you look at companies and you look at the longevity of the people there, it speaks very well of the management Mm -hmm. if the people have been there a long time and are happy that that's the case, you know, because they're not prisoners, you know. And there's a great advantage to that. There's a writer that I read a lot. He's an economist, you know, a Nobel Prize winner type of economist. And he talks about the two types of knowledge. And I think this plays very much into our magic, the magical mindset. His name is Hayek. He came out of that amazing culture of Vienna at the turn of the 20th century. You know, there was more really bright people who were, you know, in the arts, who were in philosophy, who were novelists and everything in Vienna. And Vienna was kind of this wide open city that, you know, was the center of a big empire, the Habsburg Empire, which had lasted for centuries. But it was kind of coming to its end. And oftentimes, just before things end, you get a flurry of talent who are probably picking up on weird vibes, you know, that something new is happening here. But his name was Hayek, F.A. Hayek. And he talked about knowledge. And he said, you know, We think that knowledge is something that's written down and taught and studied. But he said, if you look at how the world operates every day, the vast majority of the knowledge that makes the world work or any setting work is not written down. It's just that people have gotten used to being in teamwork with each other over a long period of time. And they can kind of read the situation without having to talk about the situation. They kind of get a feel. Can you talk about that? Because you've probably seen that over and over. You know, I once went and saw Dave Brubeck play, you know, with Paul Desmond, who was the great- Saxophone player. Saxophone player, yeah. Very unusual sax player. Very, very, uh, what they called a soprano sax. I think he was a soprano sax player. But anyway, the group that he had had been at least together for five years. You know, and Paul Desmond had been with him. He started in 46. I went back and looked it up. So 1946 is when Dave broke. And I think Paul Desmond was with him for, you know, 20, 25 years. And it was just amazing how without any kind of talking or anything, they just knew what to do next. You know, and I saw a documentary, a video with Benny Goodman with four players Benny Goodman Quintet. And it was the same thing. There was just this sense that you knew what the other person was going to do and you kind of nodded to him or you didn't do anything. They were just picking up on what you were doing. And so he calls the writing type of knowledge, he calls it implicit knowledge. Okay, it's implicit knowledge. And that is that this is written down and there are people who really make it their business to read what's written down and teach what's written down and they teach from the books. But he said that most of the knowledge is actually tacit knowledge, tacit. And it's just teamwork that's been worked out just by working it out. When did you hear Brubeck? When was this? It was, I saw him later. I saw him probably about three or four years before he died. 
He had to be almost wheeled on stage, but once he got behind the piano, he was fine. But I think it was here in Toronto, and it would have been the early 70s. Uh, a friend of mine played drums for him, Randy Jones. Oh, Randy Jones, very well known. Well, he had such difficult beats, too, you know. Well, because he merged classical with jazz. Yeah. You know, when you listen to, like, Blue Rondo Turk yeah. and Take Five, which is one of my favorite cuts of all time. Well, it's one of the great jazz <laughs> oh, numbers of all time. Yeah. yeah. And the thing about jazz, I was working with Gary Bartz, who was an amazing saxophonist. And I was talking to him about playing saxophone. He played with everybody. And I met him. He was a saxophonist for Shirley Horn. And I was doing a documentary about Shirley. I saw her, too, here in Toronto. Oh, did you? Yeah, she was great. Again, it was after her long time away, she had come back. Yeah. And then she went real big after she came back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she played organ and piano. I didn't know that. I knew she played piano, yeah. And I was no more than three feet away from her in a recording session when she was singing and playing. And it was three days of shooting, and I was high every time I left just from the vibrations of the music and being so close to her and the other musicians. And when I interviewed Gary, and it speaks to the idea of the magic, I said, so why is it that there are some saxophone players that, you know, like a, a Kenny G, you know, I don't happen to relate to his music, but he's tremendously successful. And Gary said, when you're playing jazz, you don't repeat yourself. <laughs> so every time we do another take, it's different. Then, you know, it's finally the best take is the one that gets used, but that's somebody's interpretation of what the best take is. He said, so the magic comes in in that spontaneity. Yeah. And that you're feeding off the other musicians and there's, if you're sensitive to it, a different energy every time. Yeah. So he said, so when I'm playing, my goal is not to replicate what I just did. I'm going to do something else the next time and something else the time after that. Mm -hmm. So he said, so all of my albums together haven't sold what one of Kenny G's has sold. So he's done really well but I can't play that way. <laughs> yeah. And it was fascinating. Well, the other thing about Shirley Horn, which uh, I think would take an exceptional set of musicians to accompany her, was her silences. She would say a word, and then you go, bum, 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 bum. and then the next word, she would hit it. I mean, you could drive a truck through the space between her notes when she would sing, and she would just hit us an out, and then she would sit there and you'd be sitting there and you'd be sitting there and you'd be sitting there and then she'd come in again she'd sing a few more notes but it was very interesting i saw a comment miles davis it was an interview with miles davis and he said that of anyone that he learned music from more than anyone else it was shirley horn mm -hmm. he said it's actually he says a lot of my style came from listening to how because she started off very early in her 20s and 30s, and then she had children, and she was away right. from the, the big scene. She was away from the big scene for about 25 years. And then she came back in her early 60s. I mean, might have been late 50s or early 60s. But she had been in Washington, D.C., and she sang a lot. You know, she kept up singing and everything, but nothing big. But it's very, very interesting because 
they asked Frank Sinatra once, it's a reverse case, like for where his breathing came from. And he says there was this horn player in Hoboken. And he said he had the most amazing breathing. And I would go and I said, if I can do that with my voice, what he's doing with a horn. He said, nobody will touch me. And he was, he just had tremendous breathing. In the music world, what they would call what Sinatra did, what Shirley Horn did was the phrasing. You know, it's not that they had an eight octave range, but it was that somehow they did what they did in a unique way. It was incredible. And, you know, in working with her, and by the way, for the listeners here who may have never heard of Shirley Horn or maybe even Dave Brubeck, these are people worth exploring because they are foundational in terms of music and what they did. Take Five being one of the great jazz albums of all time. And Here's to Life, which is Shirley Horn. Yeah. Signature song. Signature yes. song, yeah. That. Absolutely. And I loved working with musicians. I also did a documentary with Abby Lincoln. Huh? Her husband, she was divorced by the time I met her, but was Max Roach, who was probably the most innovative jazz drummer of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that these people talked through their instruments. And the literal example of that is if you listen to John Coltrane playing A Love Supreme Mm -hmm. and a dear friend of mine, Rob Johnson, who unfortunately is dead, but he taught me how to listen to more challenging music. Yeah. And he said, now I want you, you just heard A Love Supreme, which is amazing. And he said, now I want you to read the liner notes because what you're going to discover is he's saying each of these words through the saxophone. I said, what? And he said, read along with it. And he plays it again and I am listening and it was revelatory. Mm-hmm. So the breathing, like you were saying, the phrasing, these things mm-hmm. that made what they did so unique yeah. it was extraordinary. And then they would play with getting back to the magic and the collaboration, people who understood what they were doing. Yeah. So at Coltrane, Eldon Jones, who was the drummer, and McCoy Tyner, who played piano, who was extraordinary. I met McCoy and sat and talked to him for a while. You know, it was, first of all, just so much fun for me to talk to him about what he was doing because he was so extraordinary. But they all, and I think this is an essential part of relationships too, they all supported each other Mm -hmm. when they were out there performing. So nobody was, oh, wait, wait, we didn't rehearse that. (laughs) That that isn't what happened. (laughs) You know, they had that sensitivity to go with it. And that's why you could go hear these people again and again, and you never heard the same concert. Yeah, since you've already thrown them in the pool with Shirley Horn and Dave Brubeck, the other one that people should really get to is Kind of Blue, Miles Davis. (laughs) That was the classic case because, and this is documented, that he had one sheet of paper and he just had a bunch of scrawls on it. And he brought in the who's who of the jazz world. I think the average amount of time that each of the musicians had spent in the jazz world was like 40 years when they got together. 
And they did it in New York. They did it on two days. They had two sessions. There was no music. There was no music. These are not people who used red music to play. And he says, I'll just kind of let you know when it's your turn to come in. And they'd come in. And each of them had to improvise part of it. And they got finished. They didn't do a second take. They did two sessions. And he got finished. And Miles Davis says, yeah, I think that's pretty good. I don't think we need to do it. (laughs) We don't need to do it again. And he recorded it. And it's the best-selling jazz album in the world ever. I mean, it's it's, so good. It's just... You know, But if you listen to that, you don't even need to know jazz, but just look at the transitions when it goes from one musician to the next, when they kind of put the spotlight first on the pianist and then, you know, or they'll have the drummer, or they'll have the sax player. And the names that you mentioned, John Coltrane was on that album. Yep. And Cannonball Adderley was on that album. And I mean, there was just an amazing set of people But they had played with each other before, and they kind of knew, and nobody had to be told anything. That's tacit knowledge. That's not implicit knowledge. Right. And the the interesting thing about it is because you have these polar opposites in the musical world between jazz, you know, played by the people we're talking about, and then you have classical music with, you know, the greats. And frequently you'll find that the jazz can move over. They can play notes if they have to play notes, and they can come back over, but the classical people can't go over here. It's really interesting you say that because what you're talking about, and I've experienced this firsthand, is that because the great jazz musicians are extraordinary improvisers and the great classical players interpret an existing script, so to speak, and play those charts, and I would say are not as nimble, mm-hmm. you know, because improvisation is not part of well, I think that. they have different brains. Yeah. Well, and it's like what Gary Bart said, you know. Yeah. We're not going to play the same thing twice. And yeah, I mean, some of the great players are like Don Shirley. Mm-hmm. Don Shirley started off as a classical musician. Andre Previn, Peter Nero, you know, these were all classically trained people and then they moved over and I think Gershwin I think Gershwin was classically trained you know for interpreting America through music Gershwin is probably right up there in the top four or five people along with Leonard Bernstein and Rogers and Hammerstein and all those people but jazz always lives in its own world and it's not popular because in order to have a big audience, you have to have improvisational listeners, and there aren't that many. <laughs> yeah, because I think it's more demanding. Well, the other thing is that you can't be sitting there wanting to be entertained. <laughs> right. In the same way you can where you know the melody, everybody else knows the melody. But here, you're going to hear something new if you're listening. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't know this is a, always a fun discovery with you because I didn't know that you were that into jazz. Mm. I would say, by the way, again, to the, the listeners, whoever that may be, the Kind of Blue album is one of the greatest albums ever recorded, mm-hmm. one of the greatest jazz albums ever recorded. And for me, it was always between Kind of Blue and I absolutely love John Coltrane doing my favorite things talking about Rogers and Hammerstein and Coltrane doing my favorite things 
is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely extraordinary. And you want to talk about just being taken onto another level of consciousness with a piece of music and following him. It's amazing. So we got to go hear live music together, Dan. Yeah. I didn't know that was a passion of yours, and I absolutely love it. Yeah. Love it. The other interesting jazz musician who's kind of, he's been a puzzle. If you look at all the great historians of jazz who write the historians of jazz, he's kind of uh, puzzled to them because he kind of lives in his own genre. And that's Hamad Jamal. The great one, I think he was like 20 years old when he made it, was Ahmad Jamal at the Pershing Lounge in Chicago. And that's where he did his first Poinciana, the yes. first Poinciana thing. And that's been his standard. That's been his take five. I saw him about seven years ago. He was here in Toronto. He's about 90 right now. He's, I think he's put in about 70 years now. I think he started in the early 50s. So he's in the early he's great. 20 and he'll bring in like things like steel drums. He's very entertaining to watch because he'll play his part and then he stands up and he walks around and he'll go up to one of the other musicians and he'll just stand next to him and the, the musician will play and he said, that's good. And then his timing is just perfect that he knows how to sit down and <laughs> hit the keys. But he's got this thing, he kind of roams around the stage when he's doing it I think he plays one of the Rodgers and Hammerstein, the the Surrey with the fringe on top. He plays that. But he's got his own style. I mean, he plays four notes, and you know it's Ahmad Jamal. They have a signature, the great jazz players. Oh, yeah. I mean, all kinds of things are flooding into my brain now. But <laughs> I opened a faucet here. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, because I also think of, you know, Horace Silver and Song for My Father and just mm – -hmm. These are such extraordinary pieces of music and such extraordinary musicianship. And again, if anybody listening has not heard of these songs or these people, you're in for an amazing treat, but you have to have an open mind mm -hmm. because it is not cookie cutter. <laughs> this is just extraordinary musicians. And it comes from, it's interesting when you were talking about music written, there wasn't an alphabet for this language. It was sonic, and it was a totally sonic way of perceiving things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that. I mean, I could go on for hours yeah. about the music. So to circle it back to business. But we were talking about mindset and the kind of mindset you have to have. One thing I just thought of, because I've taken an interest in improv, you know, like the clubs where you go the second city, we had our entire team. We had Second City and about two years ago for our coaches. They had two trainers and they put our coaches through all sorts of exercise where you had to improv. You literally. That's had great. And improvisation is very, very interesting. And I learned this a long time because I went and spent a whole day at Second City. So they've had a, a very strong presence here in Toronto because it started in Chicago. It was. Was it Elaine May and Mike Nichols? I don't know who started it, but there was a whole bunch of people who were in Chicago, and Chicago was considered the second city, New York right. being the first city. Well, Toronto had a great group, you know, and we had John Candy was from the second city. Well, SCTV. Yes, yeah. Which I actually thought was superior to Saturday Night Live. Yeah. 
you had Martin uh, Short. Martin was, Short, Martin yeah. Short was, uh, yeah, you had all these. They all had to go to the States to be known. I mean, uh, if you want to be great but completely unknown, then live your entire career in Canada. You know, you, well, what, with, a, with a few exceptions, Oscar Peterson being one of them. Well, Eugene Levy, mm-hmm. Catherine O'Hara, who now yeah. Shits Creek, you know, they've probably achieved their greatest fame yeah. 45 years into their careers, you know, and they were all part of SCTV. So, you know, true talent lives on. Yeah, I did a fundraiser once where John Candy, I was part of the backstage. It was for a political candidate who had a fundraiser for a charity. It wasn't a fundraiser for the politician. And they got John Candy as the speaker. And so he came in and he was apparently a wonderful human being. Anyway, so I got introduced to him. He said, oh, damn. So we walked and we'd arranged things and everything else. And at the end, he came up to me and he says, Dan, he said, I just want you to know, he said, I've been in show business since I was a little kid and I've worked with teams. And I just want to say, Dan, I just want to tell you, you meet some people and you know you just click with them. And Dan, I just want to tell you, from the moment I met you, I knew that we were going to click. And the fact that, you know, you're from the States and F States. And he says, I couldn't leave, you know, tonight's thing without just you know, talking to you about some, can you get me a green card? Can you get me a green card? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was an unfortunately young loss. Well. But his flame burned bright while it was Yeah, I mean, he he did nothing to live a long life, I'll tell you. That's right. That's right. No, you're, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in terms of relationships, because it's interesting, we're talking about all kinds, but there's a unity among those kinds of relationships. And I think for me, and I suspect the same is true for you, is that relationships are the true currency in life. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, who do you want to spend time with is really important to me. And who will tell you the truth even when it's not what you want to hear? And who supports you? And who do you want to do business with? who has capabilities and talents that complement yours. You know, we're talking about acting, we're talking about jazz, it also applies to business. You know, you need those complementary talents. The other thing is you can plan lawn. You say, this person's gonna be there for the lawn run. You know enough about them so far that you can project it into the future and say, you know, this'll work, you know, in our, third level of strategic coach, which we call the free zone. The free zone is where independent entrepreneurs come together. And the discussion is not about money. The discussion is about we have a capability here, you have a capability here. If we put these two capabilities together to create a third thing that doesn't exist, who would benefit from that? Who would benefit from that? So the Commitment, which actually links it, you want to be valuable to the same end user. You have a passion for a particular type of person who's a customer or a client, and you want to create a new kind of value for that person. But rather than trying to do something additional inside your company, you say, I'm not going to do it inside my company. I'm going to take what's best about our company, find somebody else who's best about our company, and we're going to create a third thing out there. 
And I've got about six of them now, and they vary in terms of my happiness with them. They've been successful. All six of them have been successful in the sense that it produced a really great third thing. But the relationship always hasn't been what I would hope it would be. And I think you're guilty of the same thing, that I will overcompensate if something's missing on the other side. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, I'll do more than my part if it's necessary to make something work. Right, yes. Thank you for listening to part one of the podcast. Dan Sullivan and I have a lot more to talk about coming up in part two. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.